0: Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man that wants to remind everyone that there's no turning back once you buy a family size toilet paper. It's <laughs> Dale.
1: Yeah, you gotta get that big wide load. You gotta,
0: <laughs> you gotta have it, man.
1: It's like a five pieces wide. Is that like family size? I guess. Gotta get one for each.
0: Yeah, everybody has their own toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. Does everybody, anybody in your family have their own toilet paper they like to use, or everybody use the same kind?
1: Yeah, same kind. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, I ain't spending all that money. No, you ain't. Okay. <laughs> whatever whatever the wife wants, that's what we're using. That's okay.
0: <laughs> that's what we're going to use. <laughs>
1: Damn right. That's what we're going with. Everybody has to shut up and deal with it. That's it.
0: What's going on, dude?
1: <laughs> oh, same old, same old, man. Had a great week. What about yourself?
0: I had a very good week, and back in the crack house.
1: Yeah, man. Went and seen the, the Jeff Tate group, or Jeff Tate band or whatever it's called nowadays the old singer for queen's right the other night yeah had a great show yeah give them all crack house stickers yeah yeah man it was cool wore my crack house shirt they thought it was pretty cool Mm -hmm. so i had them all stickers and guy said that he liked to listen to true crime usually go to sleep i said well maybe i can put you to sleep tonight
0: so jeff tate uh got a crack house chronicle sticker on his guitar case he was for his, his tour bag or something,
1: or in the trash can and <laughs> Charlotte one Yeah, but I gave him one. That was cool.
0: Yeah, he had his hand for a moment.
1: <laughs> he, didn't he? he did. Yeah, no, no, those all cool guys, man. And uh, shout out to you guys. And uh, if you're checking us out, uh, we sure appreciate it. We do, yeah, because you put on a hell of a show, and I really enjoyed it.
0: That's it, man. Only bad part about
1: that is getting home at one thirty in the morning and getting up and go to work. Yeah, I have to crawl yeah. out and go to bed. Oh well, gonna going play. You gotta gotta pay.
0: Yeah, that's it. But you gotta it go. You got to do what you got to do, man.
1: But it was fun. Had a great time.
0: You got any good shout outs, dude? Anyone you well, want to do, talk about?
1: Man. We have a few, uh, few more uh, five star heroes. Five star, five star. Yeah. Five
0: star.
1: <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to say a big thanks to. Uh, J Color 3, who give us a A++. Y'all are still one of my favorite podcasts. Five stars. So I hope we weren't in danger of not becoming a favorite, but we're still up there.
0: Sounded, kind of sounded like we were on the bubble there for a minute <laughs> it or something. Like we had to
1: get our shit in gear. <laughs> <laughs> also had one uh, from the Red Rum Junkie. It says, uh, one of the best... These cases are well researched, and they handle them so well, and you can tell they truly care about the victims. Highly recommend the Crack House Chronicles. This podcast stands out amongst an overly saturated market for a reason. Wow! And dude, that is awesome. Yeah, uh, do that or whatever. We really appreciate that, and appreciate anybody taking the time to spread the word of the Crack House, and uh, it's just it's just awesome,
0: man. Yep. If anybody wants to be like those people and go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rate and review, please do. It yeah. really does help us. I promise it, it does. does.
1: Yep. Makes it feel good, too. Yep. But so anyway, if you give us five stars, please put something in the box so we will. it will let us know that you did, and we can give
0: you a shout-out here on the show. That's it. And I haven't given the store page a plug in a while, but if you want to go over there and get you some kind of merch, a uh, t-shirt or a uh, hoodie, still cold weather, to That's wear a right. hoodie, get you something cool to wear.
1: You better get some damn hail gear and raincoat after last uh-huh. night.
0: Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> rough stuff. Yeah, crazy. Yep. And uh, also, Dale, at the end of this episode, we had not done this in a while. We had not put it out, but... Um, we have a special guest that's going to be doing our outro message.
1: Yeah, yeah. We hadn't done that in a while, and uh, that was pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Chris Wainick, a big fan of the crack house, is going to do their little way. outro tonight. We got
1: to get like a golden fan award or something. Yeah. Dude, he's been kicking ass.
0: Yeah. But something to put on his shelf. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. Well, a little a statue little of little us. A little
1: miniature crack house or something.
0: <laughs> little statues of us.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah that'd be cool. Yeah. Like a little Funko thing. Yeah. That'd be sweet.
0: Bobbleheads. <laughs>
1: no doubt Yep. so what we got going on today we've been talking about somebody's gonna bitch we every two minutes
0: well we've got a case we've got a north carolina case we're back in north carolina you like that and uh i really didn't know anything about this case until you brought it up to me
1: yeah i hadn't either and uh the other week where me and my wife were out for uh, for dinner and uh we met a couple folks we met uh owen and christy mcpeak and we're having a couple drinks and uh I gave them a couple stickers, and she brought this case up to me, and I hadn't heard about it. And I checked into it, and I was like, man, that's a hell of a story.
0: Yeah, and this is North Carolina. Yeah, just right up the road here. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, Other part of the state, eastern part of the state. Well, part of it's about two hours. Well, yeah. You
1: know, Winston-Salem. Yeah. And then the rest is on, on out to uh, Washington. This right? is true.
0: So it's— uh, Kind of, sort of, close. Yeah, it takes place in <laughs> a few parts of North Carolina, but it is the North Carolina case that we're talking about today. Yeah,
1: so we really appreciate you bringing that up to us, and that's cool, and I hope you check it out.
0: Yep. But today we're talking about a guy named Leith Von Stein. Von Stein. I can't help it ask that yeah, <laughs> that's, that's just a very cool name, dude. It is, man. Yeah. Leith Von Stein. Von Stein. Now, our story today starts on July the 25th of 1988. Yes. And this was at 424 AM. That's early in the morning. Yeah, it is. And this is when a call came in to the North Carolina Beaufort County Law Enforcement Center. Buford County. Yep. Now, this is out in the eastern part of the state, and this was when there was a dispatcher working that night. Her name was Michelle Sparrow, and the, the night had been slow, and there was a call come in, and there was a woman on the other end of the emergency call that was sort of speaking kind of soft, and she couldn't really make out what she was saying. Yeah, very low. Very understand. Couldn't understand her. But the woman asked for police and an ambulance and when michelle asked her to you know speak up she couldn't hear she claimed that there was an intruder in the house yeah because could still be here yeah and the dispatcher first wondered if the caller was one of their i guess regular prank callers or they had a few mentally disturbed people who would call and report uh, like false stuff going on dude
1: yeah i guess they got their regular callers, i guess I don't know. I've never been a dispatcher, but I can imagine.
0: I I, I, I bet they get everything. (laughs) Yeah. But she asked a woman her name, and when she learned this, uh, her name was Bonnie Von Stein. And that the woman, Bonnie, she said her and her husband might be dying.
1: Hmm.
0: Now, the dispatch— At
1: this point, she realized there's no crank call. Yeah.
0: Now, um, the Dispatch Officer Michelle, she knew it wasn't a crank call, like Dale said, and she advised officers on duty as well as rescue to to respond to address. It was 110 Lawson Road,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and this was in Washington, North Carolina.
1: If possible, stabbing and beating of two different people.
0: Yeah, and Bonnie and her, I guess, in her her state, she was telling them, please hurry.
1: Yeah, and I think this lady's, uh her husband, the dispatcher was actually a police officer okay so she said you know just told her to just hold hold tight i'm my husband's police officer and i'm sending everybody i can to you right now yeah yeah we're getting everybody out there to help you
0: now the first officers on the scene were danny edwards ed cherry and sergeant bradford Tetterton, and they got to this two-story house with their weapons drawn deal Mm, i'm sure
1: you never know what you're going into that's it
0: yeah especially four o'clock in the morning with
1: this kind of call yeah
0: and they were fearing some kind of intruder in the house that mm-hmm. Bonnie had talked about on the dispatch call. Exactly. But the house was dark, and the men, they were scoping out the area with their flashlights and noted the enclosed back porch with the porch door open. Yeah. And there was a broken window beside it.
1: Yeah, so something's going on here.
0: Yep. Now, Edwards and Tetherton, they entered the home through the open door where, in the kitchen, they found a fluorescent light on over the sink. hmm and cabinet doors opened under the microwave. Yep. Yep. And a woman's like purse or handbag right there next to the, the oven.
1: So it looked like somebody had turned on the light there and just dumped his
0: handbag out on it. The- going through it, yeah. <clears throat> exactly. Yep. Now Edwards immediately detected something going on. I mean he he knew something would happen. Yeah. Yep.
1: He said he smelled a smell, and it was like a coppery scent, and, and he knew that was blood.
0: Yeah, and he's like, mm. "Yeah, if we're you've talking. ever smelled blood, it smells like, somebody's
1: it's, dead. It smells musty, yeah. especially if you're into this this business of uh, policing."
0: Yep. Now the two officers made a sweep of the downstairs, finding nothing unusual. And after turning the hallway light on and heading upstairs, there were five closed room doors, and the first one on the right at the top of the stairs a room turned out to be the master bedroom. Right. And it was dark, and they couldn't see Bonnie at all. But she was able to call them in, like, I guess,
1: desperation. Yeah, she probably heard them coming in. you
0: know. Yeah. Now, he was sweeping his flashlight around the room, Dale, and Tetherton was confronted by the most horrific sight he'd ever seen Hmm. in his uh, 26 years of service. Yeah. The room was just blood red, splattered everywhere. Yep. Let's see, and on the bed lying diagonally across it was a a stocky man clothed only in his cotton briefs.
1: Yeah, they said there was blood on every wall, including the ceiling. Wow. Just like slinging everywhere.
0: And stab wounds were visible in the man's upper back and left shoulder area. Yeah. And worse was the massive crater in the back of his head, dude. Yeah, not good. And it was so horrible that Tetterton believed that he could be looking directly into the man's skull. Oh, yeah.
1: He knew right then there ain't much I can do for this fellow.
0: Yeah. And Bonnie, who was 44 years old at the time, was laying on the floor next to the bed. Yeah. And she told uh, Officer Tetterton that her husband, Leith, who was 42, was trying to help her and an intruder attacked both of them with a big club, baseball batter, and a knife.
1: Yeah, club or a baseball bat. Yeah,
0: but she didn't really know what it was. Now, in the meantime, Officer Danny Edwards had gone into another bedroom after being told that Bonnie's seventeen-year-old daughter Angela was in the house.
1: Yeah, when they was taking the Bonnie out, you know, she's like, she was asking about Leith. And there's like, well, just don't look at him. Just don't look at him. So she knew that something was bad. I mean, But they wouldn't tell her what his condition was. And then she piped up and she said, she's not leaving this house till they find out about Angela. Yes. I mean, her bedroom was right next door.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, he found Angela asleep in her bedroom. And the room was directly next to the master bedroom. And she was only dressed in a T-shirt. And there was a big box fan there in the corner just blowing. Well, you got to have
1: a box fan, man. Yeah.
0: I and, anyway. and he also noticed there was a glass of ice water with ice cubes that hadn't melted that sat on a little nightstand next to him. Hmm, which is kind
1: of uh, peculiar. Yeah.
0: Um, Edwards awoke Angela and told her to get dressed and get out of the house. They were going to get her out of the house. And she didn't have any idea what was going on. Right. Said, I guess just ripped from your sleep. You don't know what's going on. Dude. Yeah. Now, the dispatcher, Michelle Sparrow's husband, David, like Dale said, it was an EMT before becoming a police officer. And on duty night, that night, he responded to 110 Lawson Road, and he was armed with his shotgun and his medical medical equipment.
1: That guy's he's ready for anything. He it? is. I mean, he's got <laughs> it all.
0: And he was led into the house by Officer Edwards, and he hurried upstairs to the master bedroom, mm-hmm. where he found Bonnie Von Stein laying on the floor in her bloodied nightgown. And he was checking on Leith too, and uh, agreeing with uh, Officer Tedden that it was too late to yeah to help him at all i mean he was just bludgeoned to death yeah not yeah. good and he noted that bonnie had been stabbed in the chest and was having difficult breathing so he put an oxygen mask on her mm-hmm. and although bonnie was fading fast she begged that the officers not let angela in the room and not to harm her mini cats and pet rooster that were roaming through the house dude
1: yeah she was a uh, big into that stuff. she had uh, I guess saved, for lack of a better word, a lot of other cats. I think she had 13 cats. In the house. In the house. And then this pet rooster that they had to went I think, in and out. But he was in the house that night. And then, actually, I think they had a couple dogs, too. But She had actually told the, uh, the lady on the dispatch, that when the officers come in the house, be careful I have cats. Don't let them hurt my cats. Mm. So even though she's in the state she's in, she's still worried about her cats. Mm. Yeah, she had rescued all those cats. Yep. She was known in the community, I guess, as the cat lady. But if you got 13, I think you've earned it.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, the two EMTs that arrived by ambulance at the house, they were shocked by the Von Stein bedroom, dude.
1: Yeah, they just got there just minutes after everybody
0: else. I mean, they had expected some blood, but it was literally a wash in blood. Yeah. And blood had been sprayed and splattered on the ceiling mm-hmm. and on three walls of the room. Wow. The carpet was blooded on both sides of the bed. Uh, like more than three feet out yeah and they got to work on leith first turning him over and discovering that in addition to the stab wounds in his back and the horrific head injuries that sustained there was also a large mean stab wound in the center of his chest mm. right above his heart man and, serious stuff here yeah. now both of his eyes were swollen and closed and he his he always had a beard yeah. and it was matted in blood mm. and his left hand was clenched so yeah he he suffered a, he went out fighting sounded like yeah horrific tried. death no yeah. doubt about it mm, yeah yeah there were six stab wounds from a large bladed knife in his upper back near his left shoulder and the one vicious stab to his chest which was later revealed to have gone straight through his heart right
1: well you know he said he also had five in his head three of them right across his forehead one above and slightly to the left of his uh eyebrow and the worst one was to the back of his uh left ear mm. so yeah been beaten with a bat plus stabbed all these times so it's not good
0: yeah but his body appeared to be bathed in his own blood and he had no pulse and the blood on his chest was already beginning to clot mm, tail up. yeah mm. but they couldn't do nothing for Lee, so they yeah. began working on bonnie and they found that she had cuts on her head and a stab wound to her chest that no longer appeared to be bleeding, but she did have a, um, lost a lot of blood in the time during that time.
1: Yeah, you know, later they would find out that she said that when when she heard him screaming over there when he was hitting, she could hear the like the wind coming off the whatever they were swinging the baseball bat like the. <gasps> You know yeah. in the hits and so she she kind of tried to help him a little bit but then she got she got smashed herself and kind of went out of it and then she kind of rolled out of the bed after she got hit and kind of played dead you know of course i guess she'd been stabbed a couple of times too but whatever but she rolled out of the bed and then just kind of played dead which is really smart
0: that's very smart
1: and said actually she could see that uh, the whoever the perpetrator was had came around that side of bed and was looking at her and said, was standing there, and she just kind of barely had her eyes open in the dark where she could kind of see the silhouette. And then said the guy was just looking and then kind of tilted his head kind of like the Michael Myers tilt. Wow. Oh, and then man. she heard a sh- another sharp, boom, so he'd hit her with the bat again, and she was knocked out again. So she had no idea how long she was out when she called the 911. She had to actually with her heels, push herself across the floor to the nightstand to find the cord of the phone, because it was old school landlines, you know. Yeah. And grabbed the cord of the phone and actually pulled the phone off the nightstand and to her to call, because she couldn't get
0: up. She, she was that weak. I couldn't imagine what she, how, how she done it. Mm, no. Nuh-uh. Tough. No, but they um, the EMTs did lo- notify the hospital and prepared for her, but she was gravely injured and was mm-hmm. you know fading pretty quick. And was given permission to start an IV. Yep. And they even um, put anti-shock trousers on her to keep her blood pressure up. Oh, yeah. And after a dressing was placed on her stab wound, a stretcher was brought into the house to take Bonnie as quickly as they could to the emergency room. Yeah, get her out of here. Yeah. Now, Officer Tetterton, he was talking to Angela downstairs while the EMTs were working on Bonnie. And now, Dale, she claimed to have slipped through the whole thing. <laughs> I, I don't get that, man. How could she have I don't know if it was the box fan running that just sort of muffled the whatever attack was going on?
1: I guess that's her, her story. Plus, you know, I I heard like like I said, I watched the movie and uh in the movie, you know, I don't know how much liberties they taken with her or whatever, but when she was asked about this I movie mean, she goes, Well, it could be a, a marching band playing in the hall and I wouldn't wake up. She was yeah. a real heavy sleeper, she said, but It is kind of odd, if you ask me.
0: Yeah. I know my son, when he goes to sleep, I mean, that could be a a bomb go off, and he wouldn't hear it.
1: Right. Now, I sleep pretty hard myself, and I slept through a damn Hurricane Hugo. I don't even, you know, through that. It's not the same as somebody screaming in the next door, you know. So, you know, I
0: don't know. But it seemed odd to the officers that uh, Angela was sort of detached from the news that her parents had been beaten and stabbed, dude.
1: Well, yeah, because she didn't show a lot of emotion, Mm-mm. but it's also said that she was that kind of person too. So. Yeah, but it would—I'm sure it would be pretty damn odd to somebody come in and just—you just find out she just kind of. Mm.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but now she did tell the officers that she had a brother named Chris who was away at NC State University in Raleigh. Right. And Officer Tedden advised her to call her brother Chris. Yeah, call him right now. Yeah. Now, Detective John Taylor, he was the youngest detective in the Washington Police Department. He was 27 years old, and he arrived at the crime scene after Bonnie had been taken out of the house on a stretcher. Right. And it seemed pretty apparent to him that the intruder had entered and departed the home by the back porch. But the broken window by the door was kind of odd to him as the door itself had nine individual panes of glass. Right. It be impossible for someone to reach an arm through the broken window there to unlock the door. It wasn't accessible through that broken pane.
1: Yeah, it's like uh, really weird. Yeah. You know, and they said, you know, actually that that the, the window broken was not big enough to, to crawl through, but yet you could not reach the handle either.
0: It was just a broken pane of glass that didn't reach anywhere. Yeah,
1: to me, it looks like maybe the door was unlocked, you know, and uh, so they just went in, but when they could come back out, mm-hmm. they just busted that window as a... Uh, secondary thought to make it look like a break-in. Yeah. So there's some odd shit going on here.
0: Now, also curious to him was a faded and torn military knapsack that seemed sort of out of place and was lying on the back porch by a plastic garbage can. Right. And Angela didn't recognize it. Yeah. Nobody knew who it was. It didn't, nobody knew whose it was. So they're thinking, well, maybe somebody dropped it on the way out. Now let's get back to that handbag that was found right there at the, at the oven. Okay. Uh, it had been pretty much rummaged through, and mm-hmm. two and there were two additional handbags that were found on the countertop, and they were, but there were too many other things left behind by the robbers to take, Dale, like televisions, VCRs, stereos, computers, and there was a $20 bill and change that were in plain view on a dresser in the master bedroom. Right.
1: Yeah, and they make a big deal about that, but the lights were out. True. I mean, when you go in there and turn the light on, look. I'm sure you see it, you know? but if you were in there with a baseball bat, smash people in the head, you're not. Look, you don't turn on on the light. If see.
0: you have a flashlight, you're not, probably not going to see it. No,
1: right. So, you know, but also, you know, I guess they're, what they're getting there is it looks more like a murder than a robbery than a robbery. But you know, and I can I can go with that too because they didn't take any jewelry or anything else. I think the only thing actually was missing was some money out of those purchases. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm sure with the money that. Was in this house, or the the wealth? I guess I should say. I'm they sure were, they had a pretty nice uh, jewelry collection.
0: Yeah, we're gonna get into the wealth part of it in a little bit. Right. Yeah, but also uh, Leith's uh, wallet and watch were untouched. Right. And Bonnie had wedding rings that were in a small bowl, and other jewelry was in a there unlocked box on the chest. So. Yeah. So
1: then nothing. Um, the numbers aren't adding up. Exactly. Put it that way.
0: But like Dale said, the detectives quickly came to the conclusion that the robbery was highly unlikely and whoever had entered the home had done so for the per- the sole purpose of killing Leith and Bonnie. Hmm. At the Beaufort County Hospital emergency room, the doctor on duty found that Bonnie had suffered three very ragged lacerations on her head, hmm. two near her hairline at the center of her forehead about an inch in length, and another in a C-shape over her right eyebrow. Her left thumb... A swollen and bruise was likely broken, and above her right breast was a grapefruit-sized bruise, and to the right of her sternum was a two-inch stab wound, and the blade had bounced off bone into the chest wall, causing a partial collapse of her lung, but she was still alive. She's pretty dead-lucky. Yeah, but once they was able to seal off that lung, that that hole in that lung, she was starting to breathe pretty good. Right. Yeah. Now, let's talk about Chris a little bit. This was uh, their son, Chris Pritchard, the one that was away at NC State. Right. Now, he arrived in Washington around 830 that Monday morning, and he was driven into town by the NC State Safety Patrol officers who had found him pretty hysterical at one of the university's emergency call boxes. Right. This was after Angela had called him. Yes. And Angela had informed her that uh, his mother and stepfather had been attacked.
1: Yeah you need to get your ass
0: yeah and he had woken his roommate and tore through their dorm room he actually tore it apart trying to find his car keys mm. but he wasn't able to find them
1: a little panicking sitting in I
0: sound like yeah so he had to get home somehow or another but he couldn't find his keys right but that's when he went outside seeing they could find the emergency call box and he used it to beg for help in getting home and during this two plus hour drive back to little Washington Chris uh, fell asleep yeah they said he fell asleep after about 15 minutes.
1: Well, I think, you know, and I know that sounds bad, but he'd also been up all night playing cards. This so is true. I think he only had been laying down for about an hour when he got this phone call. Yeah. So I'm sure they wasn't just playing cards and drinking tea.
0: Man, I guess everybody <laughs> handles um, stuff like this differently.
1: Yeah, I would have been freaked the hell out. Yeah. Which I would never would have thought to run out and call a call box and see if I could get a ride. Home with the, with the police either.
0: Well, you keep not find your keys. What do you do? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I wouldn't have thought of that. Mm-mm. Which you know, I don't know. I don't know. I believe I'd have woke a roommate up, and said, "Yeah, it's come home. on, yeah, get in your car. We got to go. We got to go. Yeah, I right. can't find my keys. Let me borrow your keys or something." Yeah, yeah. But uh, when Chris got to the hospital, he wanted to see his mom before speaking to any of the authorities. Yeah, and they were they let him do it, and he was allowed to sit and hold her hand in the ICU while. She was trying to recount what had happened and Chris was just sitting there crying.
1: Yeah, I think I'd be the same way. I mean, you know, we wanna call me and talk to me and Mike now I want to see my mama.
0: Yeah. All right now, Dale at this point we're gonna give a little bit of backstory before we move forward. Okay. And we're gonna talk about Leith Von Stein. Von Stein. Yeah, he was the one that was murdered there in the house. Now, Leith uh, was born in Queens, New York, and he was the only child of parents of German descent. I guess guess that's how he got his name, Leith von Stein. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But the von Steins moved to Winston-Salem, North Carolina, when Leith was just a baby. Right. And they began running a laundry that would expand to become one of the most successful in the country. Yeah, crazy. And with branches... And more than 130 employees. Me time. Yeah. And Leith, after graduating high school, went to School of Engineering at NC State University. But he flunked out by the end of his junior year. Right. And this is when the Vietnam War was ramping up, dude. Mm-hmm. And he was drafted. And he was sent to Germany for clerical work. I guess he'd had enough college to where they sent him off to do some office work instead of Seeing combat in Vietnam. which
1: Yeah, he's very lucky in that Very, very lucky. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But Leith was honorably discharged in 1970, and he returned to North Carolina and enrolled at Guilford College in Greensboro. Right. Now, Leith was well-known for his intellect, outspokenness, and he had a wry sense of humor, kind of like me and you, I guess, (laughs) as well as uh, his continued close relationship with his parents.
1: Right. Yeah, you know, he didn't want to go into the— the cleaning business so that's why he went off to college to go to try to get into engineering mm-hmm. yeah he had no desire to be in that even though they tried to get him to come and go work with him but so that's what his deal was
0: mm-hmm. now leith he sort of had a, a knack for computers because computers were coming in at this time and he mm-hmm. sort of had a thing for him
1: he was ahead of his time
0: yeah and during his time at guilford and following graduation he got a job working with computers at intagon this was an insurance company in Winston-Salem. Mm-hmm. Now, while working at Endagon, he met a woman who had also taken an interest to computers, and this was Bonnie Bates Pritchard. Correct. And Bonnie was two years older than Leith, and she had two small kids mm-hmm. and was, was recently separated from her husband. Yes. Now, Bonnie was a native of Welcome, North Carolina. Welcome. Welcome. And this is uh, located in northern Davidson County, and she'd grown up there with three sisters and a brother, and they were regular church-going family, dude. I mean, Mm -hmm. they just uh, were just quiet and shy, and Bonnie's main passions were reading and animals. And
1: them animals. I guess
0: that's why she had the cats and the chickens in the house. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But now, Bonnie had gone to work at Indigon two years after graduating from high school, and 3 years before she had married her first husband Steve Pritchard. Yeah. Now Steve who was only 17 at the time of their wedding and attending his senior year in high school.
1: Yeah, they got married, went on a honeymoon and when they came back he went back to high school. Yeah, he had to go back.
0: <laughs> he had to go back to school. Right. <laughs> now 15 months after the wedding, a uh, son Christopher was born and under 2 years later, daughter Angela was born. Right. At this time, their marriage was kind of shaky.
1: Well, she said, you know, he was kind of immature and couldn't keep a job. But I'm like, hell, he's still a teenager. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, sorry. Yep.
0: Yeah. But they ended up separating just days before Bonnie's 28th birthday mm. and weeks before Chris's fourth birthday, with the divorce becoming final the following year. Mm-hmm. And the first in the Bates family. Now, the Bates family had, uh, they ever had a divorce well. So this was a new first enemy, time for everything. I guess, yeah. But now Leith and Bonnie, they began to see each other outside of work in October of nineteen seventy six. Seventy six. And their first date was a dinner date at Bonnie's house at them watching T V.
1: After well, yeah. well, after I'm Chris
0: just, and Angela were put to bed, of course.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say they probably she probably didn't have a whole, whole lot of chance to go out much with this two small kids. Exactly. Even though I think after uh, when they got married, her, her mom and dad helped her and uh, her first husband get a house, a ranch-style house. This is about two miles from where they lived. So even though they divorced, they made sure that she kept up with the, with the house and the house payment, so she got to keep her house there. So Well, that's good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So it seemed like a very tight-knit family, mm-hmm. Bonnie's family was.
1: Right. And with her getting into computers, you know, she'd be making some money here soon.
0: Yeah. Now, two weeks after this date with uh, Leith, uh, Leith moved to Cincinnati where he had taken a job with the uh, Federated Department Stores. Mm-hmm. And he had seen Bonnie for two weekends before he moved, and although she expected things to sort of fizzle out with him, he continued to call and write her. This was before Internet, so right. you know, you just had to call or write a letter. Write a letter or make a phone call, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now, each trip he made home to visit his parents, he went to see Bonnie, too. Mm-hmm. And about six months after he moved, he introduced Bonnie and her children to His parents.
1: So things are getting serious here.
0: It is. And Chris and Angela, they had little or no contact with Steve Pritcher, their biological father. Yeah, he
1: kind of just disappeared after this.
0: It is. I mean, that's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's kind of sad, but you see, it happens.
0: But now, Leith, he did step into this role, watching the kids in their school plays, taking them out to eat, and even. Traveling with him on vacations to the beach. Yeah, he had a little, a little ready-made family. Here. Yeah, he was stepping up, so that's good. Yeah. And following a visit to welcome North Carolina at the home of Bonnie's parents, Leith arranged to have a washing machine and an air conditioner delivered to their home, telling the Bates family that it would make them feel good knowing they had some comfort in the hot summers of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Yeah. I guess they had one there. Whew. Can you imagine?
1: Yeah, it'd be rough.
0: Yeah, but this was.
1: It's what, 70 something?
0: Yeah. I remember being a kid not having air conditioner. Yeah. We didn't have no air conditioner, we just had fans running.
1: So, yeah, because I remember when we first got our uh, windy unit that was about the size of a refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, wow, that's amazing.
0: Yeah. Now, in early August of 1979, Leith accepted a new job at a finance company in South Bend, Indiana. And he asked Bonnie to go with him. As his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she said yes. And the two were married on August the 17th. And Bonnie gave up the job she had for 15 years. And she and her children moved with Leith to a suburb in South Bend, Indiana. But the winters there, they didn't suit him too well. No. I can imagine. It's cold up there, dude. Yeah. Yeah. a no part of that mess. And he got to worrying about his aging parents. So in 1981, Leith accepted a position of head of internal auditing at National Spinning Company in Washington, North Carolina. Yeah, so he's coming back home. Yeah, coming back to North Carolina. Now, in July of that year, Leith and Bonnie and the two kids moved to Smallwood Subdivision there in Little Washington, Mm -hmm. where they purchased a two-story frame house at 110 Lawson Road. Now, in 1983, Bonnie, she began teaching data processing at a local community college. Awesome! And the following year, she accepted a job as a programmer analyst with Hamilton Beach at the appliance factory with only a handful of miles from the Lawson home. And this was a position she would hold for two years. Hmm. So she's gotten a job working and lease working, so everybody's doing good. Yes. Now, in 1987, Leith's father died suddenly of an aortic aneurysm.
1: Yeah, he had just retired, actually. He had uh, sold his business and sold it out to uh, someone in Texas and uh, had retired, and then this happened.
0: Yep, and leaving his estate, valued at more than $1.2 million at the time.
1: Yeah, left it all to Leith's mother, right? Yep. yep.
0: Now, Leith's mother, already suffering from health issues herself and was grief-stricken over her husband's passing, followed him... And death only four months later, and the loss of both of his parents in such a short time uh, left Leith pretty wealthy. Yeah, but man, it yeah, took a it took a hard hit on him. Though. yeah.
1: And you can pretty much ask anybody when this happens, you give up money up for your parents, and,
0: and yeah, no problem. You should know about that, dude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, this left uh, Leith in a little bit of a rut. Yep. He had apparently never much liked his job. And by the last weekend of his life, he was talking to, du- to Bonnie about quitting by the end of the year and perhaps traveling or starting a business of his own. Yeah.
1: He was making big plans with that. Yep.
0: But Bonnie would later say that on the last day of Leith's life, which was Sunday, July 24th, 1988, Leith had been. Pretty happy and in good spirits, looking forward to the you know their their future together. Yeah,
1: yeah, well I'm sure. Now you can do what you want.
0: Mm-hmm. But in addition to the 1.2 million in inheritance he had, Leith also had about one million in life insurance. Right. And as expected, Bonnie was the beneficiary. But she was pretty. Pretty quickly ruled out as a suspect.
1: Well, yeah, I think so too. Because was, of
0: her life-threatening injuries, I right? Mean, I mean, would, that's a little
1: overboard. You yeah. Know? And then you got two million, and two million in 1988. Now, I mean, that would be about uh five million, a little over five million dollars today. Yeah. So it's a lot of money. So I can see how they were looking at her, but you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of a lot of people who do that kind of thing it would have something done to somebody, and then your injuries. Are, not so, you know, like somebody got stabbed 300 times and you got a cut on your forehead, you know, it's a little bit different than this because she was about, you know, she was pretty close to going out herself here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's
0: kind of like the Jeffrey McDonald case. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. 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 I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't think she had nothing to do with this.
0: Yeah. But if uh, Bonnie would die, that left Chris and Angela Pritchard to inherit all this money. Right. Yeah. Now we're going to get back to the case at hand. And this was back to the investigation of, uh, leith von stein's murder right now the detectives they spoke to chris that monday night around ten thirty p.m at a friend's house where he and angela were staying and he was 19 at the time and in appearance he looked closer to 16 right he looked kind of young for his age and he was a slight young man who wore a baseball cap and a and chain smoked constantly.
1: Yeah, yeah. He was he was sucking down some cigarettes.
0: Yeah, and he told them he'd come home to visit that weekend, spending Friday night in the family home on Lawson Road, mm-hmm. and that he had a term paper due that Monday, so he had to get back to school on Saturday after having dinner with his family.
1: Correct. Yeah, he had a cookout.
0: Yeah, he grilled some hamburgers for him. Yeah, sure did. Yep. And on Sunday night, he had gone out with some friends and then returned to his dorm where he'd stayed up until 3 or 3.30 drinking beer and playing cards. Right. And he had only been in his dorm room and in his bed just a short time when Angela had called him about the attack.
1: Right. That's what we were talking about when I thought maybe he fell asleep in the police car. Yes.
0: Yeah. And the school safety officers had driven him back to Washington because mm-hmm. he had been distraught and couldn't find his car keys. Correct. Because they, when they found him, he was, I think, sitting down next to that call box, just frantic.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. He yeah. running around crazy.
0: Yeah. So he wouldn't, even if he could have found his keys, I don't think he could have drove.
1: He probably shouldn't have No. Yeah.
0: He'd probably been burning the highway up and maybe just injured him and somebody else too.
1: Especially in his classic 68 Mustang. Yeah. That he got for his 16th birthday. Yeah.
0: But as far as Chris knew, his parents weren't having any problems and he knew of no one who disliked them. Right. And much less would want to hurt them. And when asked if he and Leith had gotten along, Chris assured the officers that they had very well. And something that was contradicted later by family members and friends who said that Leith and Chris would uh, butt heads quite frequently. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they had a lot of that going on. And Chris claimed that he knew that Leith had come into some stocks or money, but... He
1: didn't know how much.
0: No, he didn't know much details about it.
1: But, you know, who knows if he did or not. Yeah. You know, he went to school and he was flucking out of school and doing some stuff. And I think Leith was not happy that he was just being lazy and blowing their money because they were paying his full ride to, or paying his all his uh, expenses. expenses in school, plus giving him money to spend weekly. Yeah. And he was just kind of goofing off. And he didn't like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, even though Chris had told them that he didn't know anything about the inheritance stocks or... The life insurance policy. Bonnie had contradicted this by uh, telling the detectives that she herself had told Chris about all this.
1: Yeah, not only how much he, the, the Leith had inherited, but how much he was insured for too. Yeah. So he did know, even though he said he didn't.
0: Yeah. Right. But now the detectives they go not only on facts but you know, their gut feelings now. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times they're right. Yeah. But and the detectives not only did not trust chris they didn't like him right yeah
1: well you know when they first met him you know he, he come in and they wanted to talk to him it's like well i'm gonna go see my mama first and then i'll be glad to talk to you and that was that morning and then they had to uh, go out and find him at 10 o'clock at night at a friend's house so he didn't he he's kind of like he was dodging right off the bat
0: yeah
1: you know and then that don't make you look good especially if you got suspicions about you
0: yeah now, there would be a break in the case, and it would come from a Pitt County hog farmer. Yep. And his name was Noel Lee. Noel Lee. And Lee had just finished an hour-long process of loading up hogs at his farm that was roughly one mile over from Beaufort County line and seven miles from Little Washington. And he had been heading back home where he noticed there was a fire burning in the, like, the pre-dome darkness yeah. just before daylight. And he was being curious enough to drive his truck over and noticed that the fire was about three or four feet in height and was about two foot in diameter. Yeah, And it burned so brightly that Noel instantly knew it had been fueled by something. It yeah. Had, it had an accelerator on it, no doubt.
1: Well, he was smart. It wasn't just a hog farmer. He was also a volunteer fireman, but he also had been, I think... uh he had uh, been a teacher or something to do with uh, with fires and yeah. that kind of stuff. So it wasn't just like he was a, a hog farmer that knew about a fire. He was <laughs> so he was educated in this stuff.
0: He didn't get out of his truck, uh, I guess, from working. He just looked at it, but it didn't seem out of control.
1: Well, he knew he said it had rained the day before, so he wasn't worried about it spreading too much either.
0: Yeah, but now. Lee proved to be a pretty excellent witness who remembered the exact time he noticed the fire Mm -hmm. and recalled precisely where he'd been burning.
1: Yep. That was very unusual.
0: And on Tuesday evening, he was able to take the detectives to where he had spotted the fire. Yep. And then over to the Grimesland Bridge Road off State Route 264, where he'd been burning. And the fire, of course, had burned out, leaving a blackened circle and charred debris. Mm -hmm. And in the debris... Uh, appeared to be a socket for an extension wrench, burned remnants of blue jeans, molten remains of a sweater, the bottom of a Reebok sneaker, a large hunting knife, and his, the handle had melted on it, mm. and it was a six-inch blade that was blackened. Right. And also found were some wadded sheets of paper, and one of them partially burned that had blown out away from the fire.
1: Right. Talked about this a little bit, and then I don't know where the where the extension for a socket came from maybe it was just some of the stuff cause when it was in the trunk and probably just got when he grabbed it up the clothes or whoever was burning this stuff threw it in there and it got caught up in the pile or something but it's kind of odd that you would try to burn a knife and some other stuff it didn't burn and we wondered why the paper maybe didn't get burned but if he if he used an accelerator like gas or something maybe when he hit the you know the fire and it woofed up you know how it does It'll it blow it out blew it out maybe out to the side or maybe it was wet who knows but yeah. maybe a
0: little wind come up and blew it out or something
1: right kinda yeah. odd that the paper didn't burn up but the, they glad it didn't
0: yeah now Wednesday morning detectives returned to photograph the area in daylight to yeah. give more thorough search yeah uh, but nothing was significantly found yeah and the knife was found to be consistent with the wounds that Leith von Stein had suffered right but more amazingly, was the singed paper. Exactly. And it was examined, and one of them was determined to be a map. Yeah. A crudely drawn map with a ballpoint pen. And one word noted on the map was Lawson. Right. And blocks were drawn, obviously, to represent houses and one with an X that had 110 written on it.
1: So basically this is a map to the Von Stein home.
0: Yeah, 110 Lawson Road.
1: Yeah, it was kind of crudely drawn, you know, just the squares here and there but they also had like little uh, stick dogs drawn in places like to tell you where to avoid where people had dogs in in their yards and stuff. Yeah, so it was pretty wild.
0: Yeah. Now the funeral service for Leith Von Stein was held on Thursday, July 28th and it started to be a drizzly day and Turned into a pretty bad thunderstorm by the time the service began, but Leith's body was not present. He had been cremated, and the cremains would be buried in Winston Salem following a second and later service. Yeah, but the chapel was packed with Leith's coworkers, neighbors, Bonnie's family, and Bonnie was dressed in a black bedroom gown and was brought from the hospital in car mm. sent by the funeral home. Wow, yeah. Can't even imagine, dude. No. And Chris and Angela rode with her, and Chris, along with the mortuary employee, assisted her up the aisle and to her seat. And following the service, she returned to the hospital, where she remained for four more days.
1: Yeah, so she got out of the hospital just to go to the funeral and then back.
0: Can you imagine, dude? Mm. No. Now, on Friday, July the 29th, Washington's annual summer festival began bringing in record crowds. To I guess they have a little... The old thing going on, yeah. the festival going on, music, food stands, arts and crafts, and yeah. all kinds of exhibits. And two of the attendees on that night were Chris and Angela Pritchard.
1: Yeah, mm,
0: kind of odd. Yeah. Now, given the estimated time of the attacks on Leith and Bonnie, when Noel Lee, this is the hog farmer that observed the fire. Right. Uh, detectives believe that after killing Leith and attempting to kill Bonnie, the perpetrator or perpetrators had driven west on 264, stopping off at Grimesland Bridge Road to search for a good area to get rid of this stuff.
1: Well, you know it had to be somebody that was, that was involved because it had a map. Yep.
0: If they continued west on 264, they would end up in Raleigh and NC State University, hmm. where Chris was a student. Mm-hmm. And the focus of the investigation started to include Chris, man. And Raleigh and NC State.
1: Yeah, well, he's already acting weird. Now they're getting stuff starting to point to him a little bit. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, before speaking to anyone outside the Pritchard family about Chris, uh, investigators asked Chris to draw a map of the Von Stein neighborhood.
1: Yeah, now we—I uh, was telling you about this earlier. You know, and this is kind of odd, but in the movie, I keep referring to it, but a lot of that is kind of cool because it—you it, know—I know they take a lot of liberties, but anyway, the they was wanting him to talk to him and stuff, but Chris, was, like I said, was kind of like staying away. And then they called him one day at home, and he was there by himself. He came up to talk to him and uh, said, we got some questions. He goes, well, Mom's not here, so now we want to talk to you if that's okay. And he let him in. So he's sitting there smoking a cigarette one after the other, and they asked him a few questions. And he goes, well, you know, at the time they were staying at uh, at least Mom's uh, home in Winston-Salem. And said, uh, if you could, could you just draw, draw us a little map of uh, your neighborhood so we can kind of get a, a, a picture in our head about where everything is and how it's going? And he goes, yeah, sure, I don't see how that's going to help you, now, but I'll definitely do it. So he just starts, they gave him a pad, and he starts drawing on there and said, well, just make sure you write out the road name and stuff. And so he wrote Lawson on the, on, the, on the map and everything and gave it to him, and that was into end of that. Well, then they took it back, and then— uh, Compared it to the one that they found it was that had burned up, and it was, like, almost identical. Wow. Especially the handwriting over where he wrote Lawson. Mm-hmm. So Even I, the same,
0: like, uh, blocks for houses and everything, everything right. was pretty much the same. Yes.
1: Yeah. And he had no idea that they were, that they found a map that was burned up. Wow. He just thought they was wanting to kind of see how his his neighborhood was laid out. Yeah. So they, they pretty much had him right there. They knew he was involved some way. Wow, man. Mm-hmm
0: now speaking to former co-workers of chris and a girl he had dated uh, the detectives learned that chris had reportedly begun using marijuana and cocaine after high school graduation oh yeah and that although he'd like to think he was a lucky with the ladies uh, he wasn't he wasn't no. anything like that no the girl he had dated briefly broke up with him after he wouldn't keep his hands off of her
1: yeah he was a little handy
0: yeah <laughs> and the girl had no contact with him at since that time, but she did mention that he'd talked in, uh, constantly about a game called Dungeons and Dragons. He's
1: all into that, man. Yeah. You ever played that?
0: Uh, no, but I've seen some people do it. I've never done it.
1: Yeah, I remember. You know, back in the day, uh, a lot of people had it, and actually had got the box. I guess it's like a starter kit and a couple books and stuff. From, and then took it home and started reading it. And but I never played. Yeah. I did have the set, but I never played. Yeah, I've, I've I seen. I guess can't play by myself. Anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs>
0: Mm-mm. Now, detectives also spoke to a local 16-year-old who had often sold Chris pot and a mutual friend who confirmed Chris's marijuana use as well as LSD. Yeah, he liked the message. Yeah, which he said Chris had started taking in the middle of his first summer session. And Chris had been a little braggy on this, throwing money around on alcohol and drugs and telling his friends that his parents were wealthy, that they bought a, they bought him a Mustang, mm-hmm. a nice computer, and they even gave him a weekly allowance. Right. I think it was like 50 bucks a week. Yeah, 50 bucks. Yeah. Even though his school was paid for and everything, he was still getting money to just blow on whatever he wanted. Yeah. But Chris was easily influenced by others. They said, and the main reason he was doing so poorly in school besides the drinking and drugs was that he spent most of his time playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, that's all he did. Yeah. Now, detectives located two female students who had hung out with Chris and another friend on the Sunday night, July 24th, uh, going out to eat and then returning to the dorms. Right. Where they recalled that Chris had parked his car in the outer fringe locks rather right. than closer to the dorms.
1: Yeah, that's kind of odd, isn't it?
0: Yeah. And they remembered the evening well because their card game had not started until 10 o'clock or later in their dorm room. And beginning around one or one thirty in the morning, and one of the girls had started to ask Chris to leave.
1: So we just started playing cards pretty late, and then by one thirty, the girls are going, "Okay, it's about time for you to go home." And he's like, "Nah," <laughs> so yeah. he stays until he realizes it's about three thirty.
0: One of the girls recounted that Chris had told her that he had an outline on his computer of how to come into a lot of money, but when she asked to see it, he refused.
1: Right secret.
0: Yeah, saying it's a secret. And she further said that Chris was resentful of Leith, Mm -hmm. angry that Leith spent his money on Bonnie but not Chris and Angela. Right. And Chris felt that he and Angela would have better cars and better clothing.
1: Yeah, he felt like they should have. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I think Leith was just wanting them to make their way. I mean, he was taking care of them, giving them an education. Well, but
1: they weren't. It's just, it's just they weren't know.
0: doing without. Right, yeah, because they had
1: nothing before he came in. Exactly, and he started taking them on. He'd take them on European vacations and give them all this stuff. And they bought him at that nice Mustang for his 16th birthday. And it, they're just not, uh, you know, yeah, whatever. Not and grateful was, for nothing. And there
0: were other other acquaintances of Chris that said that um, Chris didn't like his stepfather at all.
1: No, you know, and I guess you know, I guess that comes with the territory, but. Said that him and Angela had a little net for him, and it was called Asshole. Yeah. So, but, you know, and I'm sure he, you know, they're always going to butt heads, but he's like you said, he's just trying to, to drive him the right way to where, you know, to be somebody. You yeah. Know, instead of just getting handouts you life. Yeah. Because they knew that he had this money, so he didn't want to do nothing. Yeah. He'd get some
0: money. But unsurprisingly, Chris was not a good student. No. and was better known around campus for his alcohol and drug consumption.
1: In Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I did see there was somewhere where it said that, you know, that uh, Chris wanted to do something else, but he was trying to uh, impress Leith by doing this and uh, changing his major and going to try to be a, an engineer. But he just didn't, he couldn't get it. Yeah. And it just, you know, even in the summer, he had even taken a part-time job where Leith worked. And trying to impress him which which it did. But then when he went to go do this it just didn't work out, he just couldn't do it. Yeah. So he started flucking out. Mhm. But a lot of that's like you say, like to do with the the drinking and all that mess.
0: Yeah. But they even told Chris if his grades didn't improve, uh, he would be cut off. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the detectives felt like they have a good motive for Lee's murder and the attempted murder of Bonnie. Yeah. And this was the inheritance.
1: Yeah, yeah, they told him, basically, you know, you can do better or we're cut on it. Basically, I'm not going to pay your pay your way to flunk.
0: But unknowing to Chris was the fact that even if Bonnie had died, her will and that of Leith stipulated that that neither Chris nor Angela would get their share until they reached the age of 35. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't know that.
1: I do. Mm-mm. Little claws in there.
0: Yeah. All right, now we're going to talk about a friend of Chris's. His name was James Bartlett Upchurch the third. James Bartlett Bart Upchurch the third. What a name! What a name! Yeah, that, now now as
1: big as his forehead.
0: Yeah, now he uh, Bart he was from Eastern Caswell County, North Carolina, and like Bonnie Von Stein had grew up on a farm. Yep. And his parents would stay married for years, and they endured a breakup, in which Bart and his younger siblings were separated from their father.
1: Yeah, I think it was kind of like one of those on again, off again folks
0: yeah and in elementary and high schools he had been a good student with above-average grades but tended to get bored easily mm-hmm. he was an average reader and with particular interest in science fiction and fantasy genres
1: yeah I think a, a lot of these kids are, are really smart and you just get bored
0: yeah and it was while reading one of his books that he was first introduced to Dungeons and Dragons Yep. And he acquired the board game and soon had friends with him playing after school and even over the telephone. Wow. Yeah. And by ninth grade, Bart brought the game to school with him and it would soon be played in the cafeteria during lunch. And it was so popular, it became soon other students were creating their own groups to play. And teachers were aware that the students were involved in the game, but in an isolated area like Caswell County, Dungeons & Dragons was seen as a positive outlet for kids. Right. And it was just creating their... Uh,
1: you know, stimulate the creativity yeah. and imagination, and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, sort of giving them something to do, and yeah.
1: And it's probably making a little bit of a comeback now with uh, Stranger Things, you know, with those kids. All yeah. those kids are playing it, you know.
0: Yeah. Very, very true. Yeah. The game required intense concentration and commitment. And for Bart, those who love to tell stories and love to be in charge, it answered an innate need that he had.
1: Yeah, well, you know, he, he liked, wanted he wanted to be in charge, of everybody,
0: and he wanted to be the dungeon master.
1: Always the dungeon master. Yeah, because yeah, he wanted the power.
0: Yeah, he liked that power. Yep. And although Bart had acquired a reputation as a loner and just weird, his teachers recalled him um, always being obedient and respectful to him. Yeah. Even if uh, with no apparent direction or goals in life, dude.
1: Yeah, still respectful, even though he didn't have he didn't know what he wanted.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, his upbringing, he was taught to respect people, but he just uh, was led into a, uh, down the wrong path at one point. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, you go to your office college and you're, you're your own person. You do what you want to do or you're influenced by everybody else. And by this time, it sounds like they're just, they're dissolved either, smoking a pot and playing games. Yeah. You know, they went to get all that freedom and then they don't know what to do with it.
0: mm Now, by the time Bart began his senior year of high school, this was in the fall of 85, he and his fellow players had moved into advanced stages of play in the game and had taken on new and different cast. Hmm. No longer were their characters going after monsters, but were now facing off against each other to seize others' treasures and conspire to destroy other characters.
1: Hmm. So they're basically going head-to-head now.
0: Yeah, and it was this point that uh, a guy named Neil Henderson joined Bart's circle in the D&D group. Okay. Now, like Bart, Neil came from a broken family, but unlike Bart, who did not communicate his feelings well, Neil found the separation from his adored father kind of heart-wrenching. Yeah. He had an exceptional IQ of 180.
1: Yeah, that's way up there.
0: He was considered very gifted.
1: Yeah, I think a genius starts around
0: 135.
1: Yeah. So 180's out the the roof.
0: He was so far ahead of his classmates that he made perfect scores on any test he took. Mm -hmm. And he, like, barked. He he got bored at school.
1: Well, when he went to kindergarten, they told him he actually should be in the third grade. Yeah. And then after that, I mean, he was in elementary school and was doing high school work. And they only put him in elementary school so he'd actually have uh, some classmates his own age. Mm-hmm. to be a social with but he was way way smarter than all of them yep so he'll be another one that got bored very easily
0: yep and even at 12 years old neil went off to high school and took the sat for the first time right at 12 years old That's crazy outscoring the gifted academics in the senior class mm-hmm. and at 13 he heard of dungeons and dragons for the first time and read everything he could on the subject oh yeah yeah now, when he was 14, Neil was accepted at the prestigious North Carolina School of Science and Mathematics in Durham. Now, I'm tell you, this is hard to get into. They mm. just don't let anybody walk in the door there. Right. Where he joined other students who were considered the state's best in the tuition-free boarding school. Mm. And shortly after getting there at the school, he became involved with several groups that engaged in role-playing games, including Dungeons & Dragons.
1: So he found some people like himself. Yep. Yeah.
0: And also, for the first time in his life, he made friends, including his first girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And he had a habit of procrastination, and it was still present, as well as a lack of self-discipline, and it reflected on his schoolwork.
1: Yeah, it's because everything always comes so easy for
0: him. Yeah, it bored him, man. He was just bored. Yeah. And he was placed on academic probation, and although he managed to pass with B's and C's, he was not invited to return to the school the following year. hmm I mean, if this guy would have applied himself,
1: yeah, There's man, he no could tell him what he could. Have he could have
0: done. done anything he wanted. Yep. But Neil felt bad about letting his mom down, and he later said the school freedom wasn't for him, and he didn't have the discipline to re- required to do the work. Right. And he started his senior year of high school back at home, where he played two in the band and worked on the high school yearbook and helped raise money toward the purchase of a computer for the Junior Engineering and Technical Society.
1: Hmm. Anyway, back at home in the, in regular school he's the big fish in the small pond. Yeah. Know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But like like we said, Neil spent more time playing games than he did on his schoolwork, so he pre he actually had to repeat his senior year. Even yeah. though he was that gifted. Crazy. Yep. Neil also found a girlfriend and this was Kenyatta Upchurch and she was Bart's first cousin. But she first met Neil through Bart's younger brother. And their relationship would be a typical teenager, tempestuous one, Dale. It was peppered by Neil cheating on her with other girls during his second senior year of high school. <laughs> yeah. I guess he was older and just he just didn't care, man.
1: Well, you know, he's the one that said basically he could do whatever he wanted to. Or easy, easy, manipulated, to say the right things. Yeah. He was just using people.
0: Yep. Now getting back to Bart just a little bit. Bart had his first run-in with the law in February of 1986. And this is when he and three friends were arrested and charged with breaking into the high school and stealing a computer and breaking into a lake house where they stole cases of beer, wine, a television, two clocks, and a pair of binoculars. Right. Yeah. And Bart admitted his guilt to his parents, Dale, who later said that... While Bart worried about the outcome, he would have faced the maximum of 20 years in prison, and he had no remorse over what he had done. Yeah, so he
1: worried about it, but not really.
0: Yeah, yeah. and a plea deal was worked out in March in which the two charges would be consolidated and reduced to misdemeanors in exchange for Bart pleading guilty, Mm -hmm. paying restitution, and completing 150 hours of community service in six months following his plea. Neither of which he did.
1: Yeah, so he's not, he gets in trouble, but there's no consequences. Yeah. Basically.
0: And over the next two years, he would be arrested two more times a misdemeanor larceny charge for stealing a a cooler of beer and for driving without a license and careless and reckless driving. Hmm. Yeah. Now, Bart, he tried marijuana for the first time around graduation, allegedly because he thought it was something he should do before he started college. (laughs) And initially, due to his interest in the military. <laughs>
1: Go ahead and get this out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh,
0: he, like I said, he had an uh, interest in the military. He wanted to apply for the U.S. Naval Academy, but realized his chances of acceptance were slim. Hmm. And a chance meeting with an Army recruiter led him to decide that a three year enlistment in which he saved his money and earned college credits was perfect for him until his arrest sort of come into play. That's out then. Yeah. And his probation officer refused to give him permission for him to enlist.
1: You know, and it probably would have been better if he was went ahead and let him go in. Yeah,
0: it probably would have. Probably knocked some sense into him. Right. But Bart was accepted to NC State University and while he wasn't particularly thrilled with it, he didn't want to stay in Caswell County. So this got him out of Caswell County. Right. Now Neil too had been accepted to NC State on a full scholarship he had achieved a near-perfect score on his SATs, the only 1,500 the admissions director had seen.
1: So He just smashed that.
0: Yeah, he's just brilliant, man. But Bart and Neil would become roommates, Dale.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, I think they had a lot of a lot of in common stuff with the drinking in Dungeons & Dragons.
0: But Bart's love of parties and Neil's dislike of any group activity, they didn't seem like the perfect type to get along, but they, their Dungeons & Dragons, that's what kept them together. Yeah but they remained roommates for their freshman year and even roommates at an apartment off campus during that summer of 87 but went their separate ways at least residentially by the fall of their sophomore year.
1: Yeah, because Neil was pretty much a slob. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was bad. He said he didn't get drunk and throw up and just leave it there. Yeah. Just all kind of mess.
0: Now, Bart flunked out of his freshman year and was informed that he would not be invited back. And Neil, too, had struggled ending up on academic probation with a scholarship in Jeopardy. Instead of applying themselves over the summer semester, they watched MTV, played games, smoked marijuana, shoplifted from a lot of stores, and just, well, that's what they did, man.
1: Just stupid. Stupid stuff.
0: Yeah. And by the end of his sophomore year, Neil, too, had flunked out with his scholarship revoked and was forced to move off campus.
1: Yeah, because they didn't do anything. Spent all day every day playing Dungeons & Dragons.
0: Yeah. Now, Bart was back in school for the summer session by the time he was hanging up posters in search of new Dungeons & Dragons players around campus with the promise of free beer.
1: Yeah, well, he put up a flyer. At the top of the flyer, it just said, big old letters, free beer. And then it was like, okay, now that I have your attention, if you want to play Dungeons & Dragons, come to room, whatever it was, Uh 803, I think. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) So it was like, ooh, no, okay.
0: Yeah, there you go. Now, Neil was working at a local retail store, but scheduled his hours around their Dungeons & Dragons time. Yeah. But Chris had met up with Neil and Bart, and they were playing their Dungeons & Dragons, and this is when Chris was confessing all of his troubles at home and his dislike for Leith. Yeah. He didn't like Leith at all, and he was constantly talking bad about him. And this is when uh, they were devising a plan to get rid of leith
1: yeah well you know it's where the i guess it's one of those cases where they get together and they're always he never says anything good about them it's always the bad stuff and all this and man if it wasn't there and i had that money we could just do this all day we could just you know we could just all live in one house and play dungeons and dragons and do coke and acid and smoke pot all day and nobody would have to work we'd have it made
0: yeah if he had all the millions yeah. he would buy him cars and i think he was going to buy a bar a porsche and neil a ferrari. a ferrari Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, and they're just, I'm sure it just started out just them talking junk, you know, and then this keeps getting escalated the more they talk about it.
0: Mm-hmm. But their first plan had involved Chris sedating his family with sleeping pills mm-hmm. and then setting the house on fire.
1: Right, that's what they were going to do.
0: Yeah, and that plan was sort of scrapped after Chris decided that it would be best if they were not in the home. Well, if he, that,
1: that, that plan got scrapped after he went home and cooked them hamburgers. Yeah. I mean, they were really, they were starting to do it. But he put the sleeping, sleep, uh, Bar uh see, Bart had gotten Chris some sleeping powder from somebody, from where and give it to him. It was already like crushed up in a pill bottle.
0: Yeah.
1: And he actually put it in the hamburgers when he went home and cooked that night. When he went home for uh, the night before, you know, he said they'd come and cook for him. He actually put it in their food, but it didn't work. Hmm. So he went and met up back with him because dude, it didn't even work. What'd you give me? he like, I don't know. Somebody else gave it to me. It was supposed to knock you out for two or three hours. So, actually, probably when he cooked it in the hamburgers, he probably just messed it up, whatever it was. Yeah. So, they had to come up with another plan. Yeah. And afterwards, he goes, well, that was probably about a bad plan anyway, because I'd have had to been there when the house was burning. Yeah, and then, so, the next plan was that Bart comes up with, he goes, well, how about uh, we just do it with the machete? Because he, he wanted to be uh, cut quick, quick and easy. So, he said, well, just one good whack, and I could cut their heads off. Golly. That'd be painless. And he's like, eh, that probably wouldn't work too good either. That's what they were thinking, but then when they went to the Army-Navy store, it was closed, so they couldn't get a machete. So they had to go to Kmart and bought it, and that's when they bought a knife and come up with the new plan. Yeah.
0: Yes. But this, uh, according to Neil, Bart would be the actual killer, and Neil's job was to drive Chris's car to Washington.
1: Right. Because to do the, the job. Because Chris needed to have an alibi, so he had to stay at school.
0: And Bart's driver's license had been revoked.
1: Right. So yep. they needed a driver. Yeah. So that's where Neil comes in. Yep. They wanted Neil just to drive him down to Washington, take him over there, drop him off, and then pick him back up.
0: And Neil believed he was going to be paid either 2000 or 20000
1: Yeah, for driving. He, so he couldn't remember. Yeah. Good Lord.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. It was like. Five dollars or ten dollars,
1: two thousand or twenty thousand. Yeah. yeah. So that's when uh, they always. So this is when Bart really starts kicking in, and I think he was really one of the main ones who was pushing this thing. Yeah. From what we've been told, anyway, and uh, so he was coming up with all these plans and goes, and they had Chris draw him a map so he know exactly where they were going because they didn't know, and that's where the map comes in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the day before the murder. Neil said that Chris told him his parents were about to disinherit him over his poor school performance and lack of ambition. And if disinherited, he would also have to leave school and likely find a job. A real job. Yeah, imagine that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, him and Leith had really gotten into it. And I think whether he had been disinherited or not, I think that's just one of those things he said while he was pissed off. Yeah. He said, well, you know, maybe I should just do this. So he's probably scared that it was true. And so he decided to speed things up.
0: Yeah. And Neil didn't know when the murder was going down until the day of Sunday, June 24th of 1988. Right. And this when Bart showed up with Chris's car keys and told him to meet him in the fringe parking lot behind Lee Dorms.
1: Yep. That's why he parked way out there before
0: the car game. Yep. Yep. And Neil said that Bart had applied black shoe polish to a white pair of batting gloves as well as to the bat. Yeah. And said uh, this should get the job done.
1: Yep. So this is going to be my main weapon after this, and then he pulled out his knife, and then I'll take care of this. Yep. So I guess his plan was to go in, to hit him in the head, knock him out, and then stab him to death.
0: And Neil maintained that while driving Bart to Washington, he was under the impression that he was only going to commit burglary of jewelry, and that Chris said was in the house.
1: Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know if you know, maybe he just saying that, but way, way it seems is he just had. He just didn't think they were going to do it. He yeah. just didn't think it would, it would really ever get that far. He would go in and steal some stuff and come back.
0: Yeah. And Neil told the detectives that he waited in the car while Bart went off with the key that Chris had provided. Right. And he wasn't sure how long Bart was gone, but when he returned, he told Neil that he had actually done it. That he had never seen so much blood in his life. And
1: he said, well, what the hell did you do? He said, I did what I said he said was going to do. Once yeah. He was just blown his mind.
0: And it was Bart who directed Neil where to go to dispose of the clothing, the weapons, the map, and Bart who had set them on fire. Yep. And Neil drove the two back to Raleigh and left Chris's car in the parking lot.
1: Yeah, Neil said that, you know, he had taken him somewhere and they had pulled off. And when he pulled off, he took some of the clothes off and put them in the trunk. And then they drove down another little piece, and then he made him pull off again, and that's where he was going to burn the stuff. He said, make sure you pull somewhere it's dark and uh, there's no houses around. And then uh, they pulled the car over, and he opened up a truck, and Neil said he got out to go pee. And then he heard, woof, a big woof, and he turned around, and that's when uh, um, Bart had uh, poured gas all over the pile of stuff and set it on fire.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's when he's like, holy shit. And then that's when they jumped back in the car and took off back to Raleigh. Mm -hmm. They didn't wait to see if it burned up, which they should have. Yep. Yeah, and I don't know why he thought burning the knife would be a a good idea.
0: Yeah, you ain't going to burn it. No, doesn't make any sense. No. But that's when they found that map, too, and everything. Yeah, and the map didn't even burn up. No, that's what's crazy, dude. Right. But these guys were turning on each other, dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: When the cops started closing in on when they got to Neil, he just told them everything was going on. Because he's like, he didn't really think it was going to happen anyway, and he's like, shit, we better go ahead and get somebody, because I'm fixing to lay it on you.
0: Yeah. Now, on Thursday, June 15th of 1989, Bart Upchurch was arrested for the murder of Leith Von Stein and Mm -hmm. the attack on Bonnie Stein. And he refused to say anything and asked for a lawyer. Yep. And although officers had done their best to keep Bart's arrest and arraignment secret and not to tip off Chris, a friend of Bonnie's in Washington had called her in Winston-Salem to tell her that a friend of Chris's had been arrested for Leith's murder. And Bonnie let Chris know who had been living with her after leaving school for psychiatric reasons. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Chris met Thursday night. At a friend's house.
1: Yeah, about that. Well, after everything uh, that happened, you know, he went back to school, and uh, he was doing some acid and had a bad trip. Was running around crazy, talking about how he was going to get whoever killed his stepdad and everything. And that Bart had calmed him down, and after that, he'd went and seen a a psychologist at the school. And uh, the during uh, he called Bonnie, and said, "You need to get him out of here. He's just he's uh, pretty bad off. Mm-hmm. He's suppressing something serious, and but you know he won't tell me what it is. But it's something, and need to get him out of school."
0: Yeah. Now, on Friday, June the 16th, uh, detectives turned up Bonnie's home in Winston-Salem with a, a warrant for Chris's arrest. Mm-hmm. And Chris called his attorney before returning to the house where he he was taken into custody. And on the drive back to Beaufort County, he chatted about the tornadoes that had recently struck Winston-Salem and Wake Forest, where he had enrolled in summer school, mm. but didn't talk at all about the charges no. against him, but acted certain that he would not be under arrest for long. Right. And on the morning of Tuesday, June the 20th, neil henderson was arrested in raleigh and he had known it was coming and was waiting for the detectives yeah now the trial took place in january of 1990 and chris who admitted to masterminding the murder conspiracy and neil henderson who said his role was was that of bart's lookout and getaway driver pleaded guilty and reduced charges as part of a plea bargain yeah. where they both testified against Bart up church right Now, Upchurch, who denied all charges, was found guilty of first-degree murder, assault with a deadly weapon, with intent to kill or serious injury, conspiracy to commit murder, and burglary in the first degree. Now, for these crimes, he was sentenced, respectively, to death, 20 years, and six years to life. Now, Upchurch's death was set aside on October 1st of 1992, where he was resentenced to life in prison, and he will not be eligible for parole until 2022. So, as of right now, he's still in prison. He didn't make parole.
1: Yeah, as far as we know, because we we tried like hell to find out. We can't that.
0: find anything on it. But yeah, he's still in prison. Now, Chris Pritchard was convicted of aiding and abetting in second degree murder, and was sentenced to life imprisonment. He also received a 20 year sentence for aiding and abetting the assault on his mother.
1: Right. He was sentenced for life plus 20.
0: Yeah. But he was he was paroled on June 2nd, 2007, and was later becoming a born again Christian. Yeah. And he does tours and motivational speaking on uh, his uh, ordeal and everything he's been through.
1: Well, you know, and when he was sentenced, you know, he basically I'm going by like in the movie. You know he stood up and he said you know as soon as he was the mastermind of this but as soon as it happened where he was kind of like the other guy didn't think it would ever go down but as soon as it did he was just overcome with a serious remorse and that's why he was flipping out you know what he took the acid and they had asked him how much they had done he said in a 30-day period how much acid would you have take he said probably 17 times so, i mean they were really doing that shit yeah and they were going in the basement playing dungeons and dragons and all that stuff while they were doing that stuff So they were doing crazy stuff but, uh, yeah, I said he was just overcome with remorse. And, you know, and he told his, you know, had to go in a room and told his mom and his sister that he had planned all this stuff about killing them and everything. And, and they were shocked because they just didn't believe it. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, yeah, I think, you know, right before he went in, even at his sentence, and he stood up and apologized again to his family and, you know, was glad that they were there. and said, you know, I don't deserve your support, but I'm really glad you're here and blah, blah, blah. So they kind of i guess was made up i guess you should say because even, even when he was sentenced that his mother went and seen him every time there was a visiting day she went and seen him yes so they're still close to this day yeah yeah
0: good lady which is
1: odd i'd be like well we can be close i i think you even made a point you know like well he's still getting that money even though you know all of them so because she's got it so he's back in and get it I'm like well i'd have some kind of claws in my in my stuff or anything ever happened to me you don't get nothing because i'd be scared to death
0: and a lock on a bedroom door
1: yeah and a big steel bar across, it, like you said. Yeah, then, yeah. It, you know, because how would you not? I mean, you'd have to think about it every day.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, how do I know today? Today that he decides he wants the money now.
0: I mean, she, she's got to be a good Christian woman to to do that. Yeah. And I get forgiven. I I forget. I get that.
1: Yeah, and, and in the movie but, it was kind of it was cool. I mean, I, don't, I keep referring to it, but um, it was called "Cruel Doubt." If you want to look it up, it's on uh, YouTube. But he said, you know. The Lord told me that I need to forgive my friends, Moog and uh, Neil. And He said I have. He said He's also told me I need to forgive myself. He said which I I have not yet. Yeah. You know, I just can't can't do that yet. And then, so I don't know. I think partially maybe He did regret this and was you know hating it all. But it's kind of kind of funny how it happens that quick. Yeah.
0: Now Neil Henderson, who was also involved, he was convicted of murder in the second degree, aiding and abetting, and. Of aiding and abetting assault with a deadly weapon with intent to kill or serious injury, mm-hmm. and he was sentenced to 40 years imprisonment on the former charge and was, and six years on the later. And but he was paroled on December the 11th of 2000. Now this case uh, and trial inspired a lot of books and movies. Yeah, and like Dale said, the movie *Cruel Doubt* had a lot of good people in it. It's oh on, wow!
1: It's it's packed with uh, you know big big name actors. And yeah. Yes.
0: Yeah, but it's it is on YouTube. Yeah. It was a two parter, but it's all on YouTube. Yeah, I think
1: you know? it was a made for TV movie. Yeah. But it's all you know one part. I mean, I mean, you want to look up twice mm-hmm. or nothing, but it runs together. But it's actually a pretty good movie.
0: Yeah. But there were several books and. Uh, documentaries on this story and, and i had never heard of this man this is right. this just blew my mind it being a north carolina case and uh,
1: another thing about the movie uh i hate to cut you off but before i forget about it you know they did look at the daughter too because they're thinking you know how in the hell did she not wake up because she part of this did she let the guy in the house did she know the guy and it came out that she did actually knew the guy the, the mother in the movie asked her you know did you know the guy because yeah i met him bart talking about bart you know at, at the college and they kind of hit it off because Bart actually had told his friends that that's a girl that he would want to marry. Yeah. And uh, you remember the part about the ice cubes being in the glass. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you don't know. It didn't. I've never seen a, a photo because they said that some things said that they saw it that night. Other things said that they saw it back when they went back and looked at crime scene photos. They noticed it then. hmm. But it didn't say how big a glass and how much ice cubes in it. you know it could last a while could have been and it could have been odd, but in the movie, there's a part where the mother does ask her about it and said, "Well, how did they get in the house and says that uh Chris gave him a key Well she says, well, he didn't have a key to that door hmm. it said maybe he had an older key, but he didn't have a key to that door, so even to her it was putting doubt out there that maybe the daughter let him in Could have so even though you know, all this stuff's coming out, you still
0: don't really know what happened. Maybe he was coming over to see her that night. That's what he was telling her, but then doing something else. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I don't know. You know, like I said, that, that window was busted, but it, it, was, it wasn't was busted where it would help you in any way gain entry into the house. So either he did have a key and the mother didn't know about it, or somebody let him in. Yeah. So it was mm,
0: kind of st- sketchy there,
1: ain't it? Yeah, still to this day, we don't really know what happened. I'd like to talk to him or her one. That'd be cool. Yeah.
0: But that is uh, the story of Leith Von Stein. Leith Von, well, poor old Leith.
1: Yeah. And, you know, like you said before, did, uh, neither one of them kids could have got the money till they were 35. So he's really killed for nothing. I mean, yeah. they killed that man for nothing. And yeah. he was good to them. He raised them up and, you know, paid them, gave them all. Them.
0: They didn't want for anything. No. They was just, just going to have to earn it on their own. Yeah,
1: they had it made, and he was just trying to teach them the the, water, the right way to go about stuff.
0: I mean, they eventually had it, but they were wanting it then. Yep. Yeah. Greedy. And they was wanting him to get an education and learn to trust doven. me. When
1: money comes in the thing; a lot of damn people get greedy. Yeah,
0: that's it, dude. But that is Leith von Stein, dude.
1: Von Stein. Yeah. I All
0: right, we're gonna get out of here. We're gonna let the Chris Wayne it close us out. All right, man. Let it roll.
1: Be safe. Be careful,
0: and always be aware of your surroundings, because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack House Chronicles.